This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome again to Bradbury 100. In today's show, I'll be interviewing someone who has just come out with a new book called Exploring the Horror of Supernatural Fiction, Ray Bradbury's Elliot Family, and that's Miranda Corcoran. If you've read Ray's 2001 novel From the Dust Returned, you know the Elliot Family. And even if you haven't read that book, you may have come across them in The October Country or The Golden Apples of the Sun and a number of other books. Cece or Ceci, Uncle Enar or Einar, those names sound familiar? Cece or Ceci is the magical creature in the short story The April Witch. She can merge her consciousness into other living things. She desperately wants to experience love, so she merges with a young woman and goes to a dance with a young man. Uncle Enar, he's that strange creature in the story of the same name, who has large wings, but through an accident is unable to fly at night anymore. These and other characters in the same Elliot family are among Bradbury's most fantastical creations, and I personally find it difficult to categorise these stories. They're sort of modern-day fairy tales, and they're quite unlike a lot of Bradbury's other fiction. The stories reach back way into Bradbury's earliest years as a professional writer, uh, with the first of them being published in 1946, when he was 25 or 26 years old. And that was the story called The Traveller, which was published first in Weird Tales magazine, and was later collected in a number of his books, Dark Carnival, The October Country, and The Stories of Ray Bradbury. Uncle Enar also goes way back to 1947, when it also appeared in Weird Tales. That was the magazine that used to be a home for Bradbury in those days. Enar was later collected in Dark Carnival again, R is for Rocket, uh, The October Country once more, and The Stories of Ray Bradbury. The other stories in the series debuted in a variety of places, the Saturday Evening Post, uh, Mademoiselle magazine, and Bradbury's own collection, The Toynbee Convector. Now, I said these stories go way back, but they also represent the later part of Bradbury's career, because in 2001, he did that typically Bradbury thing of stitching the short stories together into a novel, which he called From the Dust Returned. Ray did this sort of thing all the time. Uh, the Martian Chronicles, Dandelion Wine, Green Shadows, White Whale, Farewell Summer. All of these are examples of Bradbury novels which are made up of previously published short stories. In total, in From the Dust Return, there are six previously published stories, and they make up just over half of the book. The rest of the book is therefore new material, giving the book its structure. Later on, when I talk to Miranda, we'll discuss how successful this novelising process is. Now, as with all of Bradbury's books, there's a lot more history to them than meets the eye. And although I said From the Dust Returned was published in 2001, well, that doesn't mean it was written in 2001. 
As far back as 1948, Bradbury had proposed a novel based on these stories, and it was going to be called He Who Hath Wings. No prizes for guessing who the title character would have been. He worked on the idea periodically over the decades and started fully investing his time in it during the 1990s. Now, the 80s and 90s were really busy decades for Ray, despite the fact that he was in his 60s and 70s. Uh, he probably should have been winding down by this point. But during this period, he made something of a comeback as a novelist, uh, with his mystery novels, Death is a Lonely Business and Graveyard for Lunatics. And of course, at the same time, he was working on adapting his short stories for the TV series The Ray Bradbury Theatre. From the Dust Returned, for all of its fantasy premise, the young human boy Timothy being raised by the various creatures or monsters of the Elliot family, From the Dust still seems to link to Ray's familiar Greentown, Illinois. Uh, you know, the setting for Dandelion Wine and Something Wicked This Way Comes. And one of the best known of the Elliot stories is The Homecoming. And the story behind this story comes with a little moral tale of how you should never give up. You see, despite Ray's growing reputation and popularity in Weird Tales magazine back in the 40s, The Homecoming was rejected by that magazine. But Ray wouldn't be knocked back. He sent it off instead to Mademoiselle. Now, Mademoiselle was a women's magazine, and it was mainly about fashion. But it also had a reputation for publishing good quality fiction, and the list of authors who were published there is uh, eclectic and, well, it's as long as your arm. Uh, William Faulkner, Joyce Carol Oates, James Baldwin, Tennessee Williams, Alice Munro, and Ray Bradbury, of course. They published his short story, The Invisible Boy, back in 1945. Bradbury sent the homecoming to Mademoiselle, but even he ended up in the slush pile. The, the, the slush pile being the place where the dozens of unsolicited manuscripts would end up. But the homecoming was rescued from the slush pile by a, an office assistant at the magazine who stumbled across the story, read it, liked it, and passed it on to the magazine's editors. Now, they found the story interesting, but rather quirky. Far too quirky for their magazine, as it normally was. But rather than rejecting the story, they decided to shape their October issue around the story, going for a Halloween theme. And they got Charles Adams, of Adams Family fame, to create a painting to go along with the story. And they gave the story this really glorious, colourful launch. And all of that thanks to that office assistant who rescued the manuscript from the slush pile. Oh, uh, by the way, I forgot to mention his name. That office assistant? His name was Truman Capote. True story. Well, now we're going to find out a lot more about Bradbury's Elliot family in this week's interview as we meet Miranda Corcoran. With me today on Bradbury 100 is Miranda Corcoran. Miranda is a lecturer at University College Cork, 
who researches topics such as Cold War literature, science fiction and horror, and she recently co-edited a book about Ray Bradbury's Elliot family stories. Miranda, welcome to Bradbury 100. Thank you. It's really nice to be here and thank you for inviting me to be part of this. I feel like it it was very fortuitous that our book was actually published during Bradbury's centenary year. We, we weren't certain it would make it. So it's really wonderful that it's actually coincided with Bradbury's 100th birthday. Yeah, that, I think it's perfect timing. Tell us something about that book. What drew you to the Elliot family? I suppose to begin with, um, I'm sure many of your listeners will know this already, but the Elliot family are kind of recurring characters in Bradbury's oeuvre. He began writing about them in the 1940s and continued up to the 1990s. And this writing about the Elliots culminated in a sort of fix-up novel called From the Dust Returned, which was published in the early 2000s. And the Elliots are a very eclectic, very loving family who just sort of happened to be made up of vampires, monsters, mummies, witches, various creatures of the night. And I suppose what drew me to the Elliot stories was the fact that I'm generally sort of interested in these monstrous families uh, as a concept. I'm really interested in how in the years after the Second World War, in the 1950s and 60s, those kind of post-war decades, you get this sort of like pop cultural fascination with monstrous families. So you get the monsters and you get the Adams family who I know were created in the 1930s, but they sort of, they reached the sort of peak of their popularity with the 1960s television show. And you also get things like Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie. So there's this real kind of fascinating trend in the decades after the Second World War, where you start to see monstrous families proliferating in popular culture and moving into the suburbs and trying to sort of assimilate and deal with normal people. And I think the Elliot family represent a really sort of interesting permutation of that trend. Like other monstrous families, they provide a lens through which to interrogate broader questions about like what the family means in the post-war period, questions of prejudice, uh, otherness, human relationships, and so on. But I think they're sort of interesting in that, unlike a lot of these other monstrous families, Bradbury doesn't really go for the sort of the gags that you get with, we'll say, the Adams family or the monsters. You know, there isn't this sort of like consistent recourse to cheap jokes about what if a vampire lived next door. Being Bradbury, I think he kind of approaches it in a sort of deeper manner and he has this interest in sort of interactions between individuals and questions of otherness. You know, how do we engage with otherness? What is it to interact with the monstrous? And he uses the Elliot family as a way to sort of develop all of these very complex relationships. He uses the Elliot family as a way to interrogate questions of loneliness. One of the central figures in the family is a little boy called Timothy, who is a normal human boy living amongst these spectacular monsters. And Timothy feels initially kind of strange, kind of left out, because unlike the rest of his family, he doesn't have these incredible powers. He can't fly, he can't read minds, he doesn't drink blood, he's the only member of the family who's allowed to have a mirror. And this little boy, Timothy, is the only human child amongst this extraordinary family. And in many ways, it you know reflects Bradbury's own experiences of feeling a little bit odd or a little bit strange amongst his own family. But I think 
Timothy allows us to question what does it mean to be extraordinary, but also what does it mean to belong to a family? You know, how do we interact with our families? So I think there are all these sort of fascinating broader complex questions that we get with the Elliot family that we don't get with other monstrous families of the period. With regard to the book, I guess I just sort of felt that they deserved a study. I mean, the Elliots are this consistent feature throughout Bradbury's work. They pop up as often as the planet Mars or fictionalized versions of Waukegan, Illinois, but they haven't had a huge amount of study. And I felt that it would be interesting to sort of unpack what they mean within the context of Bradbury's work, within the context of post-war American culture, within the context of the Gothic, and maybe how questions of family can be explored through the lens of the Gothic. So I just, yeah, I love the Elliots and I thought they deserved a book. Do you have a favourite character? Um, I'm a big fan of Cece, the, the April Witch, mostly because the first time I read The April Witch, I remember thinking, this is a really sort of accurate representation of adolescence or at least how I recall adolescence you know she's sort of a teenage girl I mean she's actually an immortal monster but she's technically a teenage girl and she spends her time lying in her bed her physical body is confined to her bed but her power is a sort of astral projection whereby she can send her spirit or send her essential selfhood out of her body and she can travel in the air she can inhabit other creatures and in some ways, it sort of reminds me of that feeling of being an adolescent girl, whereby on the one hand, you're very physically confined, you know, you're under the thumb of your family, you can't really go anywhere or do anything, you spend a lot of time in your bedroom sulking, but you're also at this point where you begin to become curious about the world, so you start sort of imaginatively projecting yourself out into the world, fantasizing about the broader world, and I think Cece is a very kind of interesting literalization of that adolescent propensity for fantasy and imagination. I also love her because it seems as though she was based on Ray Bradbury's aunt Neva, Nevada Marion Bradbury, who was just this amazing person and this fascinating influence on his life who, you know, got him interested in Poe, got him interested in Halloween. You know, she was this really artistic, creative individual. So it's really interesting to see how Bradbury reimagines her as Cece, this witch that he refers to as a goddess of wisdom. So I think she's just an incredible character all around. And I love the connection to Bradbury's aunt Neva and the relationship between Timothy and Cece as well. That sort of reflects Bradbury's relationship with his aunt. So yeah, I think she's my favourite. Um, your co-editor on the book was Steve Gronert Ellerhoff, who'd previously done a book on Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut. How did you two come to work together on this book? I met Steve in kind of a strange way. About four years ago, I saw a post on, I think, the Irish Journal of American Studies Facebook page, and they were looking for someone to review Steve's book on Bradbury and Vonnegut. And I think I just finished my PhD thesis, and I've written quite a bit about Vonnegut, and I've been teaching Bradbury for a few years. I've been teaching a couple of his short stories. So I thought, oh, I should review that. That would be a really interesting book. So I read the book, reviewed it, and after the review was published, Steve got in touch with me to thank me for this positive review because I, I really liked the book. And from there, we sort of developed a friendship and we emailed each other a lot back and forth. And we wound up meeting up on two occasions when he visited Ireland. And we also obviously shared an interest in Ray Bradbury. 
I think some point in, I think around 2017, 2018, I started thinking about the Elliott family. I'd just written an article for the new Ray Bradbury review about the April witch. And I was sort of thinking, you know, there should be more material out here on the Elliott family. There's so many stories, they're so diverse, they evolve in really interesting ways over the decades. So they deserve a book. So I contacted Steve and asked if he'd be interested in co-editing a book about the Elliots and about their short stories and about their relationship to Bradbury's other work. And he said he would be. So we, you know, we worked together on a proposal and yeah, it just kind of, it grew out of that, that early review. And I guess out of a, a shared interest in Bradbury's work and in, in the fact that both of us felt, you know, that the Elliots deserved more attention. I don't know if you know this, but I was asked to review the proposal for the book. Oh, really? The publisher, yeah. So I, I oh. knew about it before anything had been, you know, I don't know if you'd even put a call for papers out at that point. I think we'd, ha- we'd had a call for papers and we'd gotten some abstracts so we could give like a, a vague overview of what the, the chapters would would be like. But yeah, it was in its very early stages at that point. It was that sort of unique subject matter that made me say, absolutely, this needs to be a book. Oh, thank you. That's re- that's really nice to hear it. Thank you very much. Um, you, you mentioned that you taught some Bradbury. I was going to say some other stories, but some some Bradbury stories. How much does Bradbury generally feature in your research or, or your teaching? I guess I started to be interested in Bradbury academically in around 2006, 2017. I wrote an article which was published last year in the New Bray Bradbury Review about the April Witch. So that's when I started to become interested in him academically. I'd been reading Bradbury since I was quite young, but I think that was my first sort of real academic analysis of his work. So after I wrote the article, and the article was really about witchcraft and adolescence, I was really interested in how C.C. Eliot could be seen as like an early version of the teen witch archetype. So if you think now in popular culture, we have, you know, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, we have the witches in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, we have American Horror Story Coven, all of these things with witches who are adolescents. I was thinking of Cece as an early version of that archetype. And that actually inspired me to go on and look into that archetype more. And I'm actually currently writing a monograph about witchcraft and adolescence in American popular culture. So Cece features quite heavily in one of my chapters, in particular in terms of how, as an adolescent witch, she sort of, she functions to interrogate ideas about adolescent embodiment and the sort of the fluidity of the adolescent body. So that features a lot in my research. The story is centered around Cece. In terms of teaching, I've taught the April Witch, actually. I taught a course on witchcraft in American popular culture a few years ago, and I used Cece as a way of exploring like post-war manifestations of the witch. But I've also taught quite a few of Bradbury's sci-fi stories as well. For the last few years, I've been teaching There Will Come Soft Rains as a part of a course on American science fiction. And I used to team it up with another short story called That Only a Mother by Judith Merrill. And I used those two short stories to look at the different ways in which American authors of the 1940s and 50s responded to the threat of nuclear warfare. And in particular, how they presented the American home and family as vulnerable to the threat of nuclear war. I'm actually 
including even more Bradbury next year, though I've just decided to kind of go all out and teach the entirety of the Martian Chronicles because the students love There Will Come Soft Rains. It's always a really popular text. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to teach the entire Martian Chronicles because there is just so much going on there, you know, in terms of how Bradbury represents the encounters between humanity and aliens, the, the encounter between humanity and the other, but also how he frames the colonization or the attempted colonization of Mars as analogous to the European colonization of the American continent. So there's so much going on there that I think it'll be a really interesting text to just, you know, study the entire thing. The other Bradbury text I've had the opportunity to teach is The Jar, which is a really weird one. But actually earlier this year, I was asked to teach a group of secondary school students who were coming into the university to visit. We had this competitive program whereby high achieving second level students could come in and take some classes at university and see what it was like. And for some reason, they asked me to teach one of the English classes on the short story. And I decided I would teach Bradbury's The Jar because I think it's just, well, it's a fascinating like American Gothic story. You know, it has all those trappings, you know, the kind of the swampy small town, the grotesque local figures. But I just think it's a great story to get kids into analyzing and interpreting the form, the short story form, because what's interesting about The Jar is that it's for most of the story all about interpretation. You know, everyone looks at The Jar and sees something else. They see something related to their own past, their own traumas, their own guilt. So I was kind of using that as almost like a metaphor for literary analysis that everyone will engage with a text and see something different in the same way that everyone looks at, a, at the jar and see something different. So that was tremendously fun and they actually really loved it. So that was wonderful. And they were all drawing these connections between like Bradbury and contemporary horror writers like Stephen King. And, you know, they, they really enjoyed it actually and really got a lot out of it. That's terrific. We don't hear a lot about Bradbury being taught in Europe. He's taught in American high schools, but you don't hear much about him being used these days in Europe. It's, it's a shame, actually, because I feel like Bradbury is someone that I would love to have to have studied at second level, because he's just such a master of the short story form. I mean, I think if you're teaching the short story, he's someone who just has this incredible command of it. So it is a shame, really, that he doesn't get taught here at second level. But I try to squeeze them into as many of my university courses as I can. Good for you. <laughs> That's brilliant. I think you said that you read Bradbury from a, a relatively early age. Can you remember what the first story was that you ever read? I think the first thing I ever read by Bradbury was The Halloween Tree, actually. Um, so it was actually a book, funny enough, like a full length book, which, you know, he doesn't do as often. I think I, I was quite young when I read it. I was trying to remember how young I was because I'm pretty sure I, I encountered it in my local library. Uh, so I might have been like maybe 11, 10 or 11, something like that. I didn't know who Ray Bradbury was at the time. I'd never actually heard of him. You know, I was just a kid who would go to our, the local library and seek out spooky stories. I was majorly into like Goosebumps and Point Horror, which was... Um, a very popular young adult horror series in like the, the 1990s. I came across the Halloween tree and I think it just sort of, even just looking at the cover, it just spoke to me because as a kid, I was always obsessed with Halloween. I actually kind of still am. You know, the minute the calendar would flip 
from the end of September to the 1st of October, I would be planning my Halloween costume and trying to make decorations. And there's just something that's always appealed to me about that time of the year, the change in the light, the sense that you're on the threshold of a new season. And so I was kind of immediately drawn to the Halloween tree for that reason. And then as I got older and sort of looked more into Bradbury's work, it turns out that a bit like me, he was also quite fascinated by Halloween. And a lot of this goes back to his early, you know, his early childhood in Illinois. He has, he has those memories of that, you know, that Halloween party that he had uh, with his family as a very young boy, not long after his younger sister died. And it was largely orchestrated by his aunt, Neva, who helped him plan the party, make costumes, decorations, and Bradbury always seemed to have this very sort of like fond memory of youthful Halloweens. And he seems to be someone who really appreciates the magical element of Halloween. So that really drew me in as a kid. And I began to find that more and more in his work uh, as I read it as an adult. And then I think I sort of moved on from his more sort of horror work into his more science fiction work. So I think a lot of the early stuff I read would have been things like the Halloween tree and something wicked this way comes. And then from there, I kind of moved on to the science fiction. But I think what's interesting about Bradbury is that I think it's tough to pin him down in terms of genre. I mean, I was attracted to his work from a sort of horror gothic perspective. But even when you move into his science fiction work, there's still an element of the gothic. His representations of Mars as this immense, vast, unknowable space very much chime with like early American gothic representations of the American landscape. So even when he's writing science fiction, it's kind of tinged with the gothic. So I love that about his work, but I think it was the Halloween tree that drew me in first as a sort of Halloween-loving, spooky kid. It's interesting what you say about the the Martian Chronicles in, in passing there. It depends which version of the Martian Chronicles you pick up, but in most versions, smack in the middle of it, you've got Usher too, yeah. which is completely yeah. not science fiction. It's really yeah. shoehorned in there, but it is that sort of gothic thing coming through. It is, and actually my edition does have Usher too in it. And I always find it sort of an interesting text to add there because it, it obviously has that homage to Poe. I mean, Usher too. It's it's the fall of the House of Usher and the story sort of follows the the, the plot points of both the fall of the House of Usher and to, to, to an extent the Cask of Amontillado. But I think that, you know, in many ways, Bradbury and Poe are so similar. I mean, both of them pioneered their respective genres, but also both of them sort of transcend genre in that we might remember Poe as a horror writer today, but he also wrote science fiction stories. He wrote stories about people traveling to other planets. He pioneered the detective genre. And in a similar way, you know, you have Bradbury who is primarily remembered, I guess, as a science fiction writer, but he also wrote so many wonderful horror stories and detective stories as well. So again, like Poe, he's just this sort of this incredible writer you just can't pin down or you can't hem into one category. So they're, I don't know, literary soulmates to a degree. Going back to the editing of the book, how easy or how difficult was it to assemble the various contributors for the book? Uh, was there a lot of interest from scholars? Surprisingly, yeah, it was it was pretty easy. Um, I mean, I put out calls for papers for conferences and stuff before, and, you know, sometimes it would be quite slow going, but... Actually, this one was quite, it was quite easy. We got a lot of interest quite early on. We got interest from scholars all over the world, actually. We've, we have scholars from 
continental Europe, from the US, from South America, from Australia. So it's amazing the sort of the diversity of people who were interested in the book. So we had a lot of people responding to our call for papers early on. We had a couple of scholars in mind that we sort of approached as well and just, you know, asked them, would you be interested in contributing to this book? And they were, you know, they were happy to do so. So between kind of sourcing people we knew would be a good fish and putting out a call for papers, we did get a lot of interest. It wasn't difficult to find people who were interested in writing on Bradbury. But what was really interesting actually was the the diversity of perspectives, the diversity of papers that we got. So we have people writing on the Elliott family in relation to Bradbury's history. So writing about it through the lens of Bradbury's biography. We have people writing comparative studies of, let's say, Bradbury and Shirley Jackson or Bradbury and Jamaica Kincaid. We had people writing about the Elliott family through an ecological perspective through a sociological perspective in terms of migration. Uh, we people writing about Bradbury through philosophical and phenomenological perspectives. So it was just amazing, all of these kind of diverse people who came to Bradbury from a very broad range of disciplines and a broad range of backgrounds. You know, we had people who were philosophers and literary critics, obviously, but historians, you know, people who were interested in art history, people who were interested in, in comic books and graphic novels. It was, it was just really amazing how many people, how many people were interested in it, but also just the amazingly broad range of disciplines and perspectives that they brought to the book like it's it, yeah so I think that was what really kind of surprised me I was expecting a lot of fairly straightforward literary analysis and then people just came with these incredibly diverse ways of reading Bradbury and his work so it was fantastic we were really lucky to have so many incredible contributors and so many interesting people involved in the book. I think people weren't drawing on a massive body of pre-existing work. You know, they were able to kind of look through the stories and pinpoint completely new perspectives. Like we'd one really fascinating one that looked at the Elliott family stories through the lens of changing post-war attitudes towards technology. And I thought, well, that's really fascinating because again, you know, you might assume that a story about monsters and vampires living in an old crumbling house in the middle of nowhere would have nothing to do with technology. But instead, the, the author does this incredible job of looking at the sort of ambivalent relationship between these creatures and the changing world they inhabit and how that might relate to the ambivalent attitudes of post-war Americans in relation to the, the changing technology that they saw. So it's just, yeah, it's amazing the kind of points of view. And I think sometimes when a work hasn't been studied in great detail, it opens up a lot of space for very original analysis. In terms of what Bradbury did with the stories, you mentioned that he drew his various short stories together to make a novel from The Dust Returned. What do you think of that as a novel? Do you think it works or do you think the stories work better as shorts? I actually feel that it works. I think like one thing that Bradbury was really great at doing was drawing together short stories to make novels. You know, a lot of his books that we think of as complete works, again, like The Martian Chronicles or The Illustrated Man, are just you know collections of short stories. And I think that's something he was very gifted at doing, drawing together these diverse tales and finding a thread that connects all of them. 
And obviously with the Elliot family stories, this is probably something that's easier to do since they, they feature more or less the same characters. Sometimes they have slightly different names or slightly different characteristics, but they're essentially the same characters. So it's a little bit easier to do with stories like that. But I feel like he knits them together very, very well. And it feels like it has a continuous arc, despite these stories being published between the 1940s and the 1990s. You know, a lot of the arc is very much focused on Timothy and him becoming comfortable in his family and coming to understand his role within the family since he's the only one without any magical powers. You know, he eventually comes to realize that he's the writer, the chronicler. He's the one who will write the history of the Elliots. So there's a sense, I think, of a continuous arc. I know, obviously, there were some changes made in the stories um, for publication in From the Dust Returned. And, of course, that's very characteristic of Bradbury. You know, he was always editing and changing stories for different publications. It's really hard, actually, you know, when you're writing about Bradbury to, like, to be consistent or, to you know, to kind of, like, pin down which version you're talking about. And I know that some of our contributors in the, in the Elliot book felt that perhaps the stories were a little bit more pared down for From the Dust Returned. I know that one of our um, contributors wrote about Uncle Enar and they wrote about how in the original short story, the version they were using was from the October country. There's this very florid depiction of Enar's wedding where the family are described as arriving in like a a flurry of autumn leaves. And it's this really sort of vaguely spooky, vaguely gothic inversion of a marriage ceremony. Whereas in From the Dust Returned, it's glossed over quite quickly. So sometimes there's this kind of trimming, I think that some of the, you know, some contributors felt maybe made the stories less sort of verbally playful or less kind of imaginatively rich. But I think that as a fix-up novel, it works very well. And I know that as someone who's very attached to the Elliot family, it's really nice to have those stories together and to see how they evolve and to see how the characters develop across the stories. I noticed you referred to it as a fix-up novel. Would you, would you yes. care to explain that for the benefit of the listeners? Yes. So I guess a fix-up novel, which is a term that I hear used in relation to Bradbury a lot, is essentially when you take... A, a, and this probably isn't the you know the most uh, scholarly of definitions, but when you take a series of works that have been published elsewhere, like short stories, and bring them together to form a novel, and often this will involve some kind of bridging, so there'll have to be some extra chapters or passages added to make the transition between the stories more fluid or to make the whole thing more cohesive. So yeah, it's sort of fix up as in you're taking all of these works that were published separately or published individually and bringing them together to form a more or less cohesive novel. Um, and I think From the Dust Returned is quite a cohesive novel. I often think that inherent in the idea of the fix up is the author pretending that it was intended to be a book all along, which often yes. it was not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I feel like From the Dust Return, because you have these recurring characters, it feels a little bit more novelistic. I think if, if you gave someone a copy of From the Dust Return and didn't tell them that it was, you know, a fix-up novel and that all these stories had been published over a span of like 50 years, I don't think they'd notice. When I first read From the Dust Returned, I was very surprised to find in there the story On the Orient North, which yes. I had read separately before, but I had not connected it to the Elliot family. How, how do you think that one fits in? Yeah, I hadn't either, actually. And of course, the, the central character is sort of a, a ghost figure. And I kind of wonder, yes, if, if separately, 
um, taken on its own, it was ever really intended to belong to that sort of that sort of mythos. But actually, we have some interesting contributions to our book on Bradbury that talk about that journey on the Orient, that journey to the new world, essentially, as a sort of immigration story of sort of leaving the old world and heading to the new world. And a lot of the the Elliott family members are explicitly described as being from Europe and having to flee to the new world or having to flee because the world is kind of a, a more modern place. There's more surveillance, more observation. They can't hide as easily in Europe as they used to. So they kind of, you know, they, they take flight to this empty space in the middle of nowhere in Illinois um, and sort of hide out there. So I think the story does fit in with some of the other tales of Elliot family members coming from other parts of the world. And, you know, you see this in the homecoming where all of the different family members travel across the world to Illinois for the All Hallows Eve party. So I think it kind of fits in with that. It fits in with that journey and that idea as well, again, of a sort of ambivalent response to modernity, whereby the world as a an increasingly technological place, the world as a place that is increasingly reliant on new forms of communication and surveillance, there's no room for monsters. There's no room for the ghosts anymore. So they have to hide away. They have to sort of leave their old homes under bridges and under castles because there just isn't room for them anymore. And what about the various illustrations that have accompanied the the stories over the years? Do you think that the stories benefit from illustration or is it best left to the reader's imagination? As someone who really enjoys art, I love the illustrations. For the most part, I think Bradbury has managed to sort of accumulate a body of illustration that really suits his work, I think, for the most part. I mean, I think some of it is strange. One that I find really unusual, but I really like, is the illustration for the April Witch that you find in the Saturday Evening Post, where it was originally published. The illustration is very melodramatic, like it looks like it belongs in a romance story. It's a, it's a man and a woman kissing. And obviously this is Cece inhabiting the body of Anne Leary, and she's in the arms of the you know handsome local man that she's she's run off to seduce. It looks like something you would see in a romance story. It looks like something you would see in one of those, you know, those romance comic books from the the 1950s. But I still think it kind of works. That being said, I think there are other illustrators who are perhaps more appropriate to Bradbury's work. I mean, probably the the most well-known one would be someone like Joseph Mugnaini, for example, who illustrated a lot of Bradbury's works. And you, see, you, know, you can see his illustrations in things like Golden Apples of the Sun and the Halloween Tree. And he's someone that Bradbury intentionally sought out. You know, he saw one of Mugnaini's prints and looked up the artist. And they began this very sort of fertile collaboration. I think there was a quote somewhere from Bradbury where he talks about the relationship between the author and the illustrators being a sort of amiable cross-pollination. And I think that's what you get with Bradbury when he collaborates with people like Mugnaini. There's this sort of synergy. I hate to use that word. It's such a business word. But there is. There's this, this sense that they very much understand each other and they understand each other's aesthetic. So I think the illustrations quite often work really, really well. And I think Bradbury has had some really, really interesting illustrators work with him in his lifetime. But then even later on, you get some interesting illustrations. I have this really small edition of The Homecoming, which is illustrated by Dave McKean, the guy who worked a lot with Neil Gaiman. 
And that works really well also. And of course, there's Charles Adams, who I can't believe I almost forgot, who illustrated Bradbury's The Homecoming when it was published in Mademoiselle magazine in 1946. And of course, that works really well also. I think that, you know, Charles Adams and Ray Bradbury had a very similar aesthetic. So I think that worked also. I love that image. Charles Adams' image for his illustration for The Homecoming is so perfect. It's, you know, one of those Gothic Queen Anne style houses. And it's kind of rambling and it's kind of a little bit dilapidated. And you just see all of these little monsters flying in and, you know, materializing in whirlwinds and crawling along with their weird little tentacles towards the house. And it's just so perfect. It really sums it up. So I think Bradbury's someone who's had some really wonderful illustrators to both work with him and then interpret his art separately as, or his writing separately as well. So I tend to like them anyway. I think I read somewhere recently that um, people have lost track of where that Charles Adams painting's gone. Yes. Because yes, Brad Bradbury owned it. Do, do you know anything about that? I was actually in contact with the Charles and T. Adams Foundation when we were putting together the Elliot book because I wanted to get permission to use the uh, the Mademoiselle illustration. So I was in contact with a really nice man called uh, Kevin Miserocki, whose surname I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, but he's um, currently running the Charles and T. Adams Foundation. And he's also written a few books on Charles Adams as well. And he was really wonderful and really helpful. But when we asked him about using the, the image, he said he didn't have the original, that the only thing he had was a photograph that was taken of the original some time ago. And it's a very high quality photograph, but apparently, yeah, after Bradbury's death, they just lost track of the original painting, which makes me very sad because it's such a beautiful image. I think it may have been auctioned off and they just don't know where it went, but it's really unfortunate because obviously it's important in terms of Bradbury's work, but I think it's also important in terms of Charles Adams' work and the sort of his you know his creativity as well that you know he was an artist who was just he was more than the Adams family so I think from both the the perspective of being interested in Charles Adams work and being interested in Bradbury's work it's a real shame that 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 painting has gone missing because it's incredible I would love to see a big canvas of it because there's so much detail somewhere someone is enjoying it but we just don't know who exactly. it is now uh Ray also wrote quite a few stories set in Ireland and I'm just wondering whether you could say anything as an Irish scholar working at an Irish university is there anything you could say about any Irish take on Bradbury's stories yeah you know again I feel like Bradbury could be more well known in Ireland uh, which is unfortunate because obviously he spent time here when he was working with John Huston on the adaptation of Moby Dick and he as you said wrote a lot of stories set in Ireland and most of them appeared later on in another sort of fix-up novel Green Shadows White Whale where he talks about his experience of being in Ireland and working with John Huston who was quite a character to say the least. But yeah, I mean, I think his stories set in Ireland are interesting because a lot of people or a lot of subsequent reviews describe them as being quite stereotypical or a little bit caricatured. But I think Bradbury actually had a really interesting perspective on Ireland because he was able to grasp the kind of the strangeness of Irish culture to a degree and some of the absurdity inherent in Irish culture. And in one of his stories, he talks about a bicycle collision, like two bicycles collide because it's so foggy and they're traveling at a high speed. And I think 
That's, that actually reminds me a lot of the absurdist Irish writer Flann O'Brien. It has that sort of strange humor, that almost kind of surreal perspective on Irish culture. So I think that while people might have criticized Bradbury's Irish stories for being, you know, a bit stereotyped and a bit caricatured, I think he actually was able to grasp kind of the strangeness or the surreal nature of certain aspects of Irish culture quite well. And I think actually thinking a little bit beyond his Irish stories, one of the things I think that always grabs me as a sort of really interesting interpretation of Ireland and Irish culture is his exploration of Halloween in the Halloween tree. As I'm sure all your listeners know, the Halloween tree is not only a really wonderful sort of adventure story about a group of boys searching for their lost friend on Halloween, it also explores the origins of Halloween and where it came from. So, you know, they visit the, the ancient Egyptians to see them lamenting the death of the sun. They visit Mexico to see Day of the Dead. You know, they, they engage in all these wonderful travels. But one of the things they do is that they, they go back and they see the Druids celebrating Samhain and the death of the year. And while I think they refer to it as being England. Samhain is actually more of a Celtic holiday, so it would have been celebrated quite heavily in Ireland. And the way that's described, you know, the death of the year, uh, the harvest festival, the idea that the dead come back and we interact with the dead as though they were still with us. You know, we leave out food for them. We wait for our deceased relatives to come back. That is a part of kind of Irish Samhain traditions and even sort of traditions that continue to up to this day. You know, we have All Souls Day on the day that follows Halloween. And a lot of older people in Ireland still go to cemeteries to visit their dead relatives on those days. So I think the manner in which Bradbury captures the Celtic origin of Halloween and also the sort of the Irish relationship or the Celtic relationship with death, where it's not really something that's pushed away or repressed, but rather integrated into life. I think that's actually a very good sort of grasp of Irish culture. But no, I think there's some fun elements to those stories. And I mean, poor Bradbury didn't seem to get out very much when he was in Ireland anyway. He mostly seemed to be like holed up in that hotel in Dublin, toiling away for John Houston anyway. So now as we as we come to a close on the interview, we get to my desert island question. If you were to be marooned on a desert island and you could have just one piece of Bradbury with you, what would you choose? That's been a really hard question, actually, and I've been I've been thinking about it over the last few days, and I'm still really bad at it because I think Bradbury's one of those people who wrote so many different things in so many different styles. So when you're thinking about like what piece of Bradbury's work do you want with you, you have to think, okay, do I want Bradbury science fiction or do I want Bradbury detective stories or do I want Bradbury, you know, childhood memoirs or Bradbury horror? And even though, like I said before, Bradbury's hard to pin down by genre. So these different types of writing all sort of mix up together. And even in his memoirs, you get elements of horror. And even in his science fiction, you get elements of his Gothic. But he wrote so much that it's really hard to do that. But I've decided that if I had to pick just one thing, I would pick the October country. And the reason for this, again, as I mentioned earlier, is that I've sort of always been a bit of a, a spooky Halloween loving kid. I love the stories in the October country. I mean, I love the way he describes the October country, you know, as, you know, that place where it's always turning late in the year, where the noons disappear quickly at twilight and dusk linger. I love that. I love that description. It just gives me chills. So as someone who's very much in love with that sort of liminal, transitional, dusky, autumnal feel, I'm very attracted to that generally. But I also love 
the very macabre uh, stories in that collection. I mean, obviously it features a few Elliot stories. So that obviously draws me in. It has the homecoming and it has Uncle Enar. It also has some other just very spooky stories. It has the jar and it has the skeleton, which I just think is such a horrific story. I think Bradbury was always someone who was interested in otherness and how we experience otherness. And then you have a story like the skeleton where the protagonist becomes obsessed with the otherness inside of him, his own skeleton. It's just so creepy. So I think I picked the October country for the, the general spookiness of it. And I could just pretend it was Halloween all year round while I lived on my desert island. Finally, Miranda, if listeners would like to find out more about your work, where can they look? I have a blog, but I don't update it very often because I've gotten, I don't know, quite lazy and inundated with work. But I do have a blog called uh, Miranda the Middle-Aged Witch, which is my play on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. But I haven't been updating it so much. I hope I will eventually. So I think at the moment, you might want to look for me on Twitter. I tend to post a lot of my work on there. So articles I've written and so on. So you can find me on Twitter at Middle-Aged Witch. Okay. Many thanks, Miranda, for joining me today. Oh, and thank you for having me. I really enjoyed speaking to you today. My thanks to Miranda Corcoran for joining me today. I'll put links to Miranda's blog and Twitter on my site, which is bradburymedia.co.uk. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols in collaboration with the Centre for Ray Bradbury Studies. Additional technical production by Zachary Sokol. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and all good podcast places. And you can find us on Facebook, too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk.